Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I'm always reminded of how many children we have at this church, because once the kids clear out, this place looks just empty. So it's a joyful thing to know that God has given us so many kids in the church. Um, this morning's message is... Uh, it's going to be an easy one for a lot of people to ignore, and it's also going to be a really hard one for some people to hear. We're going to need the Lord's help so that we neither fall asleep or are crushed by what God tells us today through his word. And so I want to just uh, pause a minute and ask for that blessing. So God, help us not to hear this sermon today with just our fleshly ears, but open our hearts. We don't want to ignore you. We don't want to be crushed by you, but we want to be lifted up as we hear your word. Strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the most uh, troubling and unexpected things about the Bible is how often it speaks positively about human suffering. You know, that's, that's a really weird thing because usually when you think about suffering, You think of the cost and the pain and how it feels like it's never going to end. You don't really see when you're in the middle of it anything good about it or that could come out of it. And yet so often the Bible seems to speak positively about suffering and affliction. I mean, give you one example. Look at this verse, James 1, 2. It's just one of many examples. And it says, dear brothers and sisters, whenever trouble comes your way, Let it be an opportunity for joy. If you're in trouble, if you're under affliction and suffering, that verse stinks, doesn't it? Doesn't it just annoy you to read things like that? Oh, sure. In suffering, think of it as an opportunity for joy. Is that that kind of Christianese nonsense where the Bible talks hoping that somehow by defying all logic, it could get you to believe a lie? Because the truth is, those words don't really feel true when you're suffering. And yet, God does not lie. There is a truth in those words, but we can't fully make sense of it without more information. In fact, if you're reading the the book of James, and you get to the second verse, and it derails you, and you're so mad you can't keep reading, you're going to miss out on the greater truth. How do we make sense as Christians of words like that? you got to keep reading. And look what verses 3 and 4 say. For when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be strong in character and ready for anything. See, suffering is never easy, but there's no way to live a human life and avoid suffering altogether. It's not possible. You can be as rich as Bill Gates and not avoid Suffering visiting your life at some point. Suffering is part of life. You can't run from it. And so the question is, what will happen in the course of suffering? Without God, suffering will simply break you. Without God, suffering will let the air out of your tires, leave you deflated, and make you wonder if there's any fairness in the world. But what what James is promising is if you will let God show up and if you will follow with him, if you'll go with him in the midst of your suffering in the way that he's trying to direct you, 
Suffering doesn't have to be meaningless and wasteful. It can actually be used by God to produce something good in your life. And that's important to know because suffering will come. But for some people, suffering will just be the club with which life beats them up. For others, it will be an invitation to really begin getting stronger and growing. And so there's this true principle in Scripture that even though suffering is not pleasant, God can have a purpose for us that is for our good in the midst of affliction. It's very important you hear that because when you're in the middle of it, it's going to be hard for your heart to accept that. So I'm going to explore with you some of the purposes that God might have for the suffering and affliction that visits our lives. And the first purpose I see, by the way, do you guys know if this is working at all? Is it working? It would help me if I could see that. The first purpose of suffering is to draw you closer to himself. Now, I'm going to say things that you could probably see coming from a mile away, but I need you to stay with me because I don't think that the way these points unfold is going to be quite so obvious. God uses suffering to draw your heart closer to him, and it doesn't seem possible that it would work that way, but it does work that way. Look at what verses 3 to 4 say. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. Another way to translate that is the Father of compassion. And so what Paul says boldly is, in all of your affliction, God will and can comfort you. In fact, in the midst of the greatest affliction, you can come to know God as the Father of compassion. That's a very hope-filled promise for people whose hearts are hurting. But what I've observed as a pastor, and I believe what the Word of God says, is that that's not an automatic consequence of suffering. Would you agree with me that that's true? That a lot of people are afflicted, a lot of people suffer, but not everyone ends up being comforted. Not everyone finds their way to seeing God as the Father of all mercy and compassion. There seems to be, in my observation, two general responses to pain and suffering from most people. And the first of those responses is despair. You see that a lot. People who are in pain, and it just wails on them. It punches them in the face, and they, they flat out fall down, and they cannot get back up. And then there's another response to pain and suffering, where people rise to hope and reach up to God. And I've seen most of the time that either one of those two responses is what comes out of us when enough pressure and heat are applied to our lives. So I'm going to ask you this question. What is your usual response to the hardest kind of trial that has come upon you? Have you found that when you're in pain, when you're suffering, your heart generally tends to to reach up to God in desperate hope? Or does it fold in on itself in despair, in discouragement, in self-pity, maybe even self-destructive behavior? What have you found generally to be the case for you? And I wonder, what makes the difference between those two responses? Why is it that some people in the midst of affliction reach up to God in hope while others fold inwards and just cave in and are broken by it? I think that there's a key difference between those two responses that drives one way of going or the other. 
before I give you that key, I want you to understand this. Paul is not talking theoretically. Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament, and most of it, he writes from a position of victory and strength. But as he opens up the letter, the second letter to the church in Corinth, you can tell right away from the first chapter that something is going on in Paul's life. If you communicate enough with somebody, when you get an email from a friend who you've been walking with for a long time, you know right away when there's something off in that person's life. And that's what's going on with this letter. Paul doesn't start with his usual upbeat tone. From the very first verse, he's obsessed with the idea of suffering and affliction. And it's not very long in the chapter before he he confesses, something's going on in my life. I'm not writing to you about suffering and how to handle it as somebody sitting in a comfortable place teaching others how to go through it. I have just passed through one of the greatest afflictions of my life. Here's how he described it. The affliction we experienced in Asia, was we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That word despaired is highlighted because in the Greek, it's a very interesting word. If you dissect that word, here's what it means. It means literally no exit is available. No exit is available. Meaning there is no way out. It's a kind of suffering so intense when you try to think about every possible solution, you feel like there's no way. I've burned my bridges. There's no way to get out of this. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you're in the middle of a situation just like that right now. A friendship once treasured is completely in ruins. You're going, well, too many words were said. Too many negative, strong feelings were expressed. I can't get over what I'm feeling. And no matter how many ways I turn it over in my mind, there's no way out. There's no solution. Others of you have gone through a broken relationship or a a diagnosis of illness, something so heavy that the pressure just bore down on you. And no matter how many ways you picked it apart, you just don't see where the hope is going to come from. And what Paul is describing is that he himself has just passed through a season of such suffering. He despaired for life itself. He felt like he had received a death sentence And at that point, what happens to most people is they just check out. They begin preparing to die. They say, you know, there's no hope. I'm just going to become accepting that this is what's going to happen to me. I'm ready to go. So that's what's happening to Paul. When all hope is gone, he learns one of the greatest lessons of his life about God's purpose for us in affliction. The difference between whether we will respond to affliction with hope reaching up to God or with despair just folding inward upon ourselves, is where ultimately we have placed our true hope. What's interesting is, pain has this clarifying power, doesn't it? See, when you're doing well, you can claim just about any real motivation that drives your life. And there's no way to know for sure if what you're saying is true, or if you even believe it, But pain has this very clarifying ability. It's just like, that's how torture actually works, isn't it? I mean, torture works in such a way that you say, well, I'm not going to tell you my serial number, my name, my rank. I'm not going to tell you what my mission is. But when they torture you enough, pain has this way of driving out the truth in people. And the thing is, when you are doing well and you are at peace, you're not always sure what the truth is about you. Even in marriage, let's say, and not everyone in this room is married, but for those who are married, think about this. 
how do you really know why that person who's married to you stays with you? How do you really know how deep that commitment runs? When you're newlyweds, of course, it's so easy. Everyone's like, God, we just love each other so much, you know, and I'll be with them forever. There's nothing to tear us apart. Oh, my goodness. I don't know why I'm speaking a southern accent, but it, just when you're happy, a southern accent just comes out of you, doesn't it? Newlyweds are just like that. Nothing has really hit them hard enough, so you're so optimistic, and you truly believe that you are, you are united by a bond that cannot be in any way damaged or shaken. You stay married five, six, ten years, those shaking things will happen. See, without pain, you're not really sure how strong that bond is. But pain has a way of bringing clarity to the truth. I really believe that in great affliction, our response is an indicator of where our hope was always placed. You can claim that you walk with Jesus, trusted in Jesus. You can claim that all day long, but we will only know in true affliction and your response to it where your true hope really was placed. And what I've discovered is a lot of people who give a lot of verbal credit to the power of the gospel, when their lives go through the storm, they hit the eject button, they bail. They run because it's too much. I can't bear up under it. Yes, the gospel has great power, just not in this particular situation. You don't understand how bad it's gotten. It can't work here. The only solution is to run. It's to cave in. It's to give up the fight. And so the point I'm trying to make is our response to affliction is one of the best barometers, the best indicators of where our faith really, really is at any given moment. It will not let you lie. How you respond to the greatest pain is the truth of where your faith is. And that's why I believe God allows affliction to visit our lives because he does not want us to live under the illusion that we're somehow closer to him than we actually are. It's not good for the soul to live in a lie. And so he says, that's great that you say, you verbalize that you love me, that you trust me. But every now and then I will allow an affliction to visit you that will test whether or not those words ring true. And that's why even though it is not pleasant to be under affliction, we should welcome at least that aspect of it. Look what I'm doing and I'll know where my heart really is. And the point for me saying that is not that if you're one of those who are caving inward, collapsing, I don't want you to just feel guilty and defeated, but for you to understand, now at least there's no illusion, no pretense. I don't have to act like I'm greater in my faith than I am. In this affliction, I've seen myself truly, and I actually don't trust God or his power very much at all, it turns out. And yet in the midst of that confession, the words of Paul ring true. In all our affliction, God comforts us. If you will admit that you haven't trusted him enough, the open invitation still stands for you. Why don't you come now and trust him? Having confessed the fact that our faith is weaker than we may have believed, we go to God's open invitation saying, Now, Lord, having admitted where I am, I want for you to come and comfort me. I really think that this works in general, but it's especially true 
of the worst kind of suffering. And I see a spectrum of suffering from like irritation and annoyance, like, oh man, I went outside in summer and got too many mosquito bites. I'm suffering. That's what I would put on the, this side of the spectrum, really low-level annoyance. And then we walk up the stream all the way to the other end, and that's what we call affliction. Affliction. The word itself just sounds unpleasant, right? How many of you, even if you didn't speak English, would want to be afflicted? It just sounds so bad. Uh, on this side of the spectrum is an affliction, which is a, a pain so intense that you just want to give up every time you think about it. Do you know anything about pain like that? That's the kind of pain that God most often uses to bring clarity to where we are. And Paul expresses that very truly. He says in verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and with confidence, he says, he will deliver us again on him we have set our hope. That's how we know where our, how we, we're going to respond to suffering. Where we've placed our hope will determine how we respond to hard times. And so that's the question I have for you. Where have you really set your hope? If you want to know the answer to that, you're going to have to go through some hard times. You're going to have to go through some really hard times. Let me give you a second purpose that God has for us in our suffering. It is to equip you to comfort others. On July 30th, 1967, just a few months before I was born, a very athletic, energetic, adventurous young woman hung out at the beach with her friends and decided that she would jump off of a high cliff into the Chesapeake Bay. This is just the way she was. She loved a good challenge. She loved life. The thing was, she didn't check the depth of the water before she dove. And that was the last thought as she was lunging herself into the air. I wonder how deep the water is. It turned out the water was not deep enough. And when she landed, she snapped her neck between the fourth and fifth cervical vertebrae, became a quadriplegic, and was confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her earthly life. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tata. If you grew up as a Christian in the era that I grew up in, her name was everywhere. She became such an inspirational figure because what would you do if all your friends were getting ready to go off to college and begin their lives, you were hanging out with them, and then that day with one simple decision, you imprisoned yourself in a body that didn't work for the rest of your earthly existence. And while they're off running away, having fun, enjoying everything, you feel encased in this prison, unable to move, literally paralyzed. What would that do to your heart? I can tell you honestly, when I first heard that story, I went crazy with frustration. I don't know what I would have done because I'm like her. I love moving. I just wounded my, I can still walk. But even then, I'm grieving and whining every chance I get about how I've lost so much of my freedom to run. What would happen inside of you if that were your story? And with one regrettable decision, you had effectively ruined your entire future and you had to watch the world go on without you. And the reason Johnny Erickson so inspired us was that at the point where she could most have caved in and given up, even in the hospital, she said, somehow we will fight through this and I will make a life. And she, her faith in God carried her through that. And she began to merge, not only surviving, but victorious. She began a ministry called Johnny and Friends. 
And she, she began ministering to people who were also trapped in wheelchairs, confined because of these physical disabilities. She has brought free wheelchairs and, and started camps, and she has brought hope to so many people who didn't know how to handle the pain and the frustration and the unfairness that these handicaps, these disabilities, had put upon them. She has helped so many people out of the place where she herself experienced the greatest pain and then the greatest comfort from God. This is what I mean when I say that God wants to use our affliction to equip us to love and comfort others in the midst of their affliction. And so often, out of the place of your greatest defeat and pain, he will use you to comfort others who are in that same place because you know exactly what they're going through. Here's what Paul writes. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. What Paul recognized right away is having received the blessing of comfort from God, he knew right away that it was not meant simply to produce gratitude in himself but that there were many others who were going through the same valley of despair, no way out, no solution in sight, despairing even of life itself, and they needed someone to just stand there and tell them, you will get through this. There is life and hope on the other side of this long tunnel of suffering. Sometimes it's not even about giving someone a wheelchair or giving them advice, just Being there, alive, smiling, still reaching out for the Lord is an amazing gift to people who are hurting. Because they look at you, and you should have been broken by what happened to you, and somehow by God's grace, you made it through, and you still want Him. And I I wonder if we realize what a strength and comfort that represents to people who are in pain. Just to see somebody else who was shattered by the same pain still walking with Jesus Christ, still reaching after him, so that we have hope that says, you know what, it doesn't have to break you. It wants to break you. I want to give in to that that defeat. But I look at your life and I say, there's at least another option available to me. I figured everyone going through this valley of despair would just give up. But then there's you. You're a stick in the mud. You're the one grain going the other way. And you remind me that I don't have to give up just because I've been mortally wounded. I can fight. Do you ever see war movies where a guy's just mangled by a landmine and you see, and it's just so graphic, the leg is just blown off, his guts are starting to smell. And there's a guy that goes, just hold on, Jimmy. Medics are coming. You're going to make it. And you go, don't tell him that. He's a goner. Let him die in peace. But there's a spirit in some people that says right there looking at you, mortally wounded, hang on, don't close your eyes, don't fall asleep. The medics are on the way, and you will make it. Do you realize how badly some people just need to see that in somebody else? To hear that and say, look, I know you think there's no way out for your messed up marriage. I know you think you're going to be trapped in aloneness forever single till the day you die. Maybe you're, you're going to be childless, jobless forever. And you think, isn't that the funny thing when we're suffering? We think that present suffering is permanent. We think that's how we're going to end our lives forever without these things our hearts long for. And then someone comes along and says, none of this is forever. 
Just look at my life. The word fellowship, which we so often use in church world, is a Greek word koinonia, which if you literally translate it means to share in common. I believe that the kind of fellowship that people enjoy who have suffered the same suffering is not about giving practical help or good advice. Often it is just about saying, you're in the same room with me, you have endured the same pain, and because you are here with me, I feel understood and less alone. I'm coming to learn as an impulsive fixer that that's what sometimes people need most in the midst of their pain. It's not that that perfectly timed word of advice, but sometimes somebody says, I, I've been there with you. Let's just sit together. I want you to know that you're not by yourself in it. And I know what it feels like. If you will let him use it, God will get you through your affliction, but then he will turn around and use that comfort to be of immeasurable comfort to other people who feel so hopeless in the situations they're trapped in. Let me give you one last purpose that God has for our affliction. And that is to cure us of our self-reliance. Cure us of our self-reliance. And I've chosen those words intentionally. Self-reliance is a disease that has not served anybody well, and we need to be cured of it. It is our default setting. Everybody born relies on themselves until they learn that it's not worth it to rely on themselves. I think one good definition of affliction is suffering that exceeds my ability to rescue myself. Did you catch that? Affliction defined as this. It's suffering so great, it goes beyond my ability to rescue myself. Look, right now in my wallet, I've got about, I think, 22 bucks. If I'm hungry, I will not pray for food. I will go to Wendy's and buy a spicy chicken combo meal with big chunky fries and sea salt. Getting hungry. You see, where I have the power and the resources to rescue myself, I always will do it, won't I? Who prays when there's money in the bank? Who prays when there's medicine on the shelf? Who really prays when I still have resources in my own hands to rescue me? Why would I desperately rely on God or anybody else? But when do you find yourself most instinctively brought to your knees in humble dependence on others? It is only when your suffering is so great it has clearly exceeded your ability to rescue yourself. I believe that when we're powerless to do any more for ourselves, that is the only point at which we can begin learning truly what it is to depend on God and depend on anybody else. And if you never get there, you will never grow spiritually. The self-reliant person is among the most deceived person on the earth. And some of you are exactly that person today. You may not want to admit it, but everyone who knows you well can point their finger right at you and say, yeah, listen, you're, you're that person. You have never learned to trust or depend on anyone else. In fact, you know that the thought of needing, not just wanting or accepting, but needing somebody else's help is so repugnant and scary to you. 
And why? Why is it so scary to us to receive help from others, to depend on someone? It's scary because it's humbling. That's the healthiest way to put it. For many, it's humiliating. It's degrading to admit that I've run out of resources. I'm helpless and dead in the water. Without your help, I'm done. It's not an easy thing to admit. And I find that generally males have a harder time with this than females. It's not because, uh, I'll tell you why, it's because we're more pig-headed, more prideful, more convinced that we are greater than we actually are. Men walk around with incredibly inflated views of themselves. That's partly what makes us tough. You kind of have to believe you're bulletproof in order to go to war. I mean, I'm going to tell you that right now. Um, you got to believe it's an Xbox game brought to life in order to go to war. If you really knew, no one would go. And so we do need some of that. But it has really not served anybody well to live under the illusion that I can depend only on myself and still end up okay. Now, I don't want you to look at that person, but some of you are sharing your life with a person like that. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't learn how to depend on God, then he will use the tool of affliction to teach it to you. Because he loves you, he will not let you perpetuate this myth that you are somebody who needs nobody else. He loves you too much to let you actually believe that garbage and call it Christianity. And he will break you, not because he hates you, but because he wants to rescue you from this lie which you have believed that somehow you don't need to depend on anyone but the person in the mirror. Paul says it so simply. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. Does that sound familiar? We used all our strength. We did everything we could, and then there was no more left. We were so stretched beyond anything we could deal with that we gave up. The fight left us, and we despaired even of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but what, what was all that for? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That is why God does it. It is why he permits such terrible affliction to fall upon the people he loves. It is one of his primary ways of curing you and me from the lie, the destructive lie of self-reliance. If it's hard to rely on God in the midst of pain and need, sometimes it's even harder to rely on other people, isn't it? And isn't it so tempting to privatize your pain, to hear a sermon like this and say, fine, fine, I will quietly get behind closed doors and beg God for help. That's as far as I'll go. What if I said to you in the midst of that, no, that's not enough, because part of the plan of God is that you would trust not just him, but the brothers and sisters which he's put in your family all around you. That that's the full story he's trying to write in your life. That's hard, isn't it? Can I tell you as a pastor, it's frustrated me. I understand it, but it's still frustrating. How many times people in great trouble and pain, I say to them, listen, 
This is a trouble that I alone cannot help you with. We will pray to God, but there is some need here for us to share this with others. We need to tell the church so that they can pray with you. They can offer tangible help to you. Will you let me share this with others? Will you yourself share this burden with others? Do you realize how many times I've heard the words, no, no, I'm not ready to do that yet. Pain makes us retreat inward. We want to privatize our suffering because to admit that we have pain and needs that have exceeded our means is humbling. And when we tell others, it makes public our shame that we ran out of things we could do. But I believe that one of the reasons God also permits affliction in our lives is to knit the church together, to teach us that we rely not just on him, but on each other. And believe it or not, God could use your affliction and my affliction to teach the church to pray. And so Paul says it. He said, look, I'm already receiving comfort from the Father of mercies. But I'm asking you who read this letter now, you also not just should, but must pray for me. You must help us by prayer. Because when I stop privatizing my pain, when I share it with you as well as with God, the church finally gets to be the household of God. And finally, I get the full measure of the help and comfort that I was supposed to receive in the midst of this pain. I'm not yelling at you to do that. If you're one of those people who really has a hard time sharing this, me yelling at you about it is not going to make you more forthcoming, is it? And please don't receive it that way. I'm not trying to guilt you into sending an email about your pain. I'm saying, look, You will struggle to get comfort, and unless you share the burden with others, you will only get a portion of the comfort which God is trying to send your way. There is an amazing thing that happens when we take the risk of sharing our burden, and the people of God fold in around us and carry our load with us. There is a sense of being truly in a family, being thankfully indebted to others, that really has no other parallel in human experience. It really makes you feel like you don't just go to this church, but you've become a part of it. And I really believe that until we go through that time of affliction and watch the church rally to our side, we will have only a partial taste of what this church is supposed to be. And so I want to encourage you, If in the midst of all your trials, you generally tend to put up the high fences. You're reminding everyone, please don't share this too much with others. You know who I'm talking about. You're one of those people who's very, very careful to keep after every conversation. Hey, uh, can I just remind you for the eighth time, please don't tell other people about this. If you're that person with that instinctive need to be quiet and private, I want to encourage you, take a risk. Step out of that fear and let your church know that you are not a self-contained being who can do everything on your own. I need help. You must help me by prayer. You will see something amazing unfold in the church if you'll take that risk. So church, are you afflicted? This picture Heath drew, I love. You can't quite see it, but The guy on top is not just the helper. He's also bound by a chain, and he has a burden pulling him down the other side of the hill. That's really the story of the church. None of us will ever help the others free of our own burdens. I've got my rocks. 
wanting to pull me down. And yet I will use that as leverage, as an anchor to pull you up all along the way. And I know that someday you're going to return the favor. It's ninja skills right there. And like a seesaw, we will just pull you back and forth over this mountain. And one day it'll be my turn to pull you up. And the next day it'll be your turn to pull me up. None of us are always victorious. None of us are always victims. We are wounded healers called to take care of each other in a messed up world in a broken church. And I know that I'm helping some of you with your relationships, but in the past you have helped me with mine. Isn't that the church? And if you will heed these words, if you will receive them not as just from your pastor, but as from God, if you will actually put them into practice and embrace affliction as an opportunity to grow, God will do amazing things through the darkest seasons of your life. And when you've run out, God will supply. And your view of him and the church will grow. Why don't you bow with me? Let's pray together. If you're not ripped apart right now by pain, it would be easy to think that this message doesn't really apply to you today, and you just move on. And if that's where you are, I'll just simply remind you that you may not be in affliction today, but affliction is coming. You can't be human and alive and not suffer on this earth. It will come. Suffering is not distributed equally among God's people. Some of you will bear a much greater share than others. You already have. But isn't it good news that no matter what portion of affliction you are called to bear, if God was not in the picture, all it would do is break you. But because God's in the picture, even in the midst of your pain, God might have a good purpose. He is trying to grow you, and there are some ways that you will only grow if you pass through pain and end up with comfort. If you're in the midst of it now, you're up to your knees in it. And this word is really for you today. He may be using that pain to reveal to you just where your hope really has been placed all along. If your pain is shattering you, at least you know where you stand. He may be using that pain because there are people you love who will pass through the same pain one day. And he's training you to love them when they have to go through that dark time. Maybe it's just that you have lived all your life under the lie that you are an island and you don't need anybody else. You have no idea what that lie has cost you already. You may think the people close to you are close to you, but they're at arm's length. 
your lover, your family, your friends, none of them can get very close to you because the truth is you've never really thought you needed anyone else. And maybe one day you'll find that all those people are gone. God may be using your pain to break you of this lie and teach you that you need other people and you need him. You cannot rely on yourself. So wherever you might be, I'd like to invite you for just a a couple minutes. Would you respond to God in your own voice? Just leave it quiet and then I'll pray for us. Lord, it's so hard to suffer. But what if when we prayed, no one heard? What if when we cried out, there was no you? So we're just so thankful that there is you. You are there and your great promise, Emmanuel, is that you are with us. Near to us, but also on our side. You are with us. That's just awesome. And we need to hear that when we're in pain, God. When we've run out of every ability to rescue ourselves, we need to hear that you are our Father of mercy. And in all our afflictions, you will comfort us. Not all of us will find our way to that comfort. Some of us will reject you and run. But I pray that you have mercy and teach us to turn to you when we can't turn to ourselves. I pray especially for those right now who are just at the brink of collapse, under such a weight of affliction that they don't even want to fight anymore. They're just about to give up. I pray that you will be their strength today. Help them not to go over the edge of that cliff. Not to give up the fight. I pray that in our affliction, all of us, you will work out your purposes for us. Redeem our suffering so that it would not be wasted, meaningless suffering but you would help us to grow through it. We pray these things in faith. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.